Hello, and welcome to Broadening the Narrative. This is a podcast where I talk to people who are broadening the narratives I was taught within white evangelicalism. I'm your host, Nikki Pappas. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm so glad you're here. My first memoir, As Familiar as Family, is now available to purchase on my website at NikkiPappas.com. I'll share more about this at the end so we can get to today's episode. On today's episode of Broadening the Narrative, I am joined by a very special guest. Raheem Buford is here, and I'm so excited to be talking with him. Raheem has an extensive bio that I will be including in the show notes for everyone to read about and also in the posts that I put with this episode, and he's going to share about his background with us as well. I first heard about Raheem and his work on the Rumors of Grace podcast and his episode titled Decarceration and Transformative Justice, which we will be discussing today. Thank you for coming on to the show, Raheem. How are you today? You are very welcome. And today I'm feeling revived. I just uh, got back from Alabama uh, Gulf Shores and I was there for about three, three days, kind of forish, and just walking on the beach, baptizing myself in the ocean in my own kind of way, not in a religious way, but like just a spiritual way of just, you know, communing with nature. And uh, I'm back now. I'm ready to work. Oh, I love that. I'm so glad for that for you. Well, yeah. Can you share some more about yourself and your background, kind of anything from your bio or your background that you think would be helpful for our conversation today? Yeah. So I'm originally from uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and I, you know, I had some humble beginnings. Grew up outside of Nashville with my mom, uh, had two older brothers, spent a lot of time with my grandmother and um, simple life, simple life. But um, by the time I turned five or six, my mom married a guy who was not my father because my father, he didn't complete the deal. He didn't honor his word. He didn't marry my mom and he had promised to. So my mom married another person and we moved out to uh, Northeast Nashville. And uh, for two years, it was really good. This guy was, became my stepdad. And after two years, this dude became a monster. And um, I found myself getting into trouble, falling behind my brothers, just, just small stuff, you know? And one day I ended up like getting arrested for some kind of thing like auto theft. I really don't remember exactly what it was, but things just spiraled out of control. And I, by the time I'm, you know, 16, I'm facing juvenile detention reformatory school. And um, that's like all in between I'm not doing well in class. I don't like school and so many things that influenced the bad choices that I made. And so I really didn't understand what was going on. Next thing you know, my grandmother dies while I'm in juvenile. And when she died, it was the first time I felt pain and, and no one had hit me. And so I never really processed that. There was no counseling, grief counseling, bereavement. I, you know, They gave me a pass so I could leave the reformatory school attend a, a funeral and uh, be with my family for some time. And while I was on that pass, I ended up getting with my stepbrother and we ended up committing a robbery. And I'm laying this foundation because it's important for people to understand that you don't really just end up in a bad situation and there's no uh, history that precedes it. But in our country, it seems like people try to isolate you and stop you in a moment of time. And what that does, it disallows for any type of uh, completed understanding of a human being. 
and there's no justice in, in such a thing. But for me, when I got out in July of 88, in less than nine years, I'm charged with felony murder because of a robbery that had gone wrong where I had shot a gun into a floor and a bullet ricocheted and it hit someone and he had died like 72 um, hours later. And as a result, I was arrested not long after, and that was in 1989, May the 5th. And from 1989, May the 5th, until June the 25th, 2015, I was caged throughout the state of Tennessee, seven different prisons, family reunions in prisons, gang fights, suicidal situations, uh, so many things, and that's the worst of what it was. But there was also a beauty where I had to confront my true self and find an inner space where there was something that was untouchable by you know, the outside world. And that's my inner self, my inner being, that humanness that is not like physical, but the ontological self. And that was like sparked from you know, studying religion, trying to understand you know, what my purpose is in life, why am I here? What is life really all about? What does this thing mean? And so um, as I am talking to you, I will have been out of prison seven years come June the 25th. And so that's a long time. And I, I actually am speaking to you from my own home. And so I know that in life, in a generic way, you know, second chances exist in, in a theological, Christian, even other religious ways, there is a thing called redemption and atonement. And there are different things that once you settle into life and tap into your inner being, something magical almost takes place. And that's where my life is today. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that background and laying that foundation and just realizing, like you said, when you look at the full scope rather than trying to isolate something. And for you having these really formative experiences during tender years of your life and your development. And so you do a lot of work now in advocacy for youth. And I read your book as well, Save Your Own Life. And so with the work you're doing and with Unheard Voices, uh, I saw how you wrote about the science behind cognitive development and how that is continuing up until you're 25 years of age. I think that's another layer and component to this uh, when we're looking at how this system will isolate a, an individual and try to kind of keep them from any of the uh, circumstances around them that may have contributed to a decision, but also the fact that when it's a youth or someone under the age of 25 and the brain development there. So yeah. Can you talk about your work there and advocacy for youth and unheard voices? Yes. Yeah, so unheard voices outreach was birthed from a poem in the book. Uh, and the poem is titled, who am I? And then the first stanza of that poem I remember what happened. I was in Riverbend Maximum Security Institution. I was sitting on my bunk bed on the bottom bunk. There was a top bunk. And I was just like sitting with my legs crossed. And I was looking out this, this window that had a bar in it. And somehow I just started receiving or thinking. I don't really know, contemplating. But I said, who am I? Mm -hmm. Society doesn't seem to know. 
representing the unheard voices. My name is Rogelo. You see us in the now, our prison condition, blind to the facts of our mental afflictions, past decisions made before our 15 second mindless crime spree felony convictions, the monies, the honeys, the madness, materialistic sadness, 13 brothers, five sisters, seriously drastic. And so out of that poem, unheard voices came about because I was given a voice and a narrative to help America understand that people who make bad choices aren't necessarily bad people. People who make bad choices, particularly when they're young people, there are external influences on their lives that they have absolutely no control over. You don't choose your parents. You, you don't choose your social status. You don't choose a lot of things that are contributing factors to why young people make bad choices that, pos that do cause harm. And so as I studied and tried to you know, gain an understanding of why did I make bad choices, I stumbled on the science of the brain and how the frontal lobe is not developed until after like 25 and some say longer. And so that means that young people are more prone to make rash decisions, particularly males. And it's even enhanced when you grow up and you experience a lot of trauma, like a lot of people who grow up poor, African-American people, Latino, Latinx, um, and poor white people. Their brain is affected by the out, outside forces. And so what Unheard Voices allowed for me to do was to build around an idea that those who were not being heard needed to, to be heard. And, need, and so I just worked within the prison itself. I would speak at these tours when high school students come in, juries would come in, legislators would come in, and I would give voice to my own experiences, but I was not like the only person because all throughout prison, you're gonna find like in Tennessee, the young people from ages 18 to 30, I mean, they pack prisons. And so having an understanding, I was able to develop what is called an apologia. It's not an excuse as to why, but it explains why. And that's what we don't allow for in the criminal legal system, because if you know the whole story, you may not be so inclined to convict somebody of something that is harm is bad the way that it affects lives, you will have to check out their humanity and you will have to understand mm -hmm. that that person wasn't bad. He or she just made some bad choices. Then you have to deal with the whole, um, the extenuating circumstances in that person's life. Mm. Yes, and just that word humanity, right? And to, to nestle into the humanity of the person who has caused harm, but then to when you see their humanity to begin to understand, like you said, the, the circumstances around that. And you talked in your book as well about exploring your past in this way that is without judgment and fear. And so, yes, like I would love if you could speak about what it looks like to explore our past with some curiosity and compassion and getting that explanation rather than approaching our past with judgment or fear. Yeah. So for me, I developed a very um, rich imagination while I was in prison because it was necessary as a survival tactic. Because prison is an artificial environment that it, it thrives on negative energy. And positive energy 
is what pro produces peace, what produces mm -hmm. the best that life has to offer, right? And so in having an, an imagination, you know, I was, I was able to think differently um, about being, being in prison. And so I didn't allow myself to see myself as just in prison. So I told myself that I was in school because education allowed for me to liberate myself from thinking that I was just, just in prison, right? And so when I went on the journey of education, I developed the intellect to look back in time, like it's as though I were in a movie. And so when you're at a movie, you don't really know what's gonna happen in a movie. And so I looked at my life, like almost out of body, like zooming out. And I saw myself being born to this, this single parent mother who had already had two children and who was afraid because in that time she's having children, she's not married. I was born in 1971. And then I have two older brothers. She was a teenage parent. And so I saw how one of the memories that I had with my own dad hitting my mom. And then, you know, as time went on, I saw the violence that I grew up under in the household because of this thing called corporal punishment. And growing up in the South, still having slave practices, plantation ways. And so if I didn't judge myself, I had to ask this question, what would I feel? And as I looked at my own life in the movie, I felt compassion for myself. Because when I looked at the real, the wholeness of my life, I had friends and peers that loved me, spent the night over everybody's house in my neighborhood. Um, I had a job, three, four jobs. I cut grass. I played football, baseball, soccer, basketball. I was a typical American person. And yet this one thing that I did that was so bad that there was no backdrop to it had defined me not in truth, but in the system in how Americans allow for um, this tag to be placed upon us because we never really deal deep, look deeply off into, you know, who's deciding definitions, who has the power, you know, mm -hmm. to remove humanity from someone and make them a felon, make them a criminal. So these things are not just behaviors. These are policies and laws and people who are in positions of power. And a lot of that stem in, in, in comes from racism and white supremacy. And so having looked at like a lot of things in life, I had to find my own humanity. And when I found it, that was a liberation that came about. And I've been on that journey ever since. Mm. Yes. And I just, I see in your story that as you are able to practice that compassion toward yourself, then you can do that with other people as well. And you've just done that so well. And the word power, like coming back to that and like who holds the power and what do they do with it? And so in our current system, the power, how that is wielded against people who are incarcerated or formerly incarcerated. Could you talk a little more about the social death that incarcerated or formerly incarcerated people experience under the current system. Yeah. So, so what happens when you are processed through the criminal legal system? Notice I didn't, I never will say criminal legal system or the criminal justice. I mean, I would not say the criminal justice system because the thing we call justice has not even been defined by the current American people mm -hmm. who are uh, living in society. Some, some few people, 
defined justice hundreds of years ago. And the reality is that it had nothing to do with the real meaning of justice in the sense of like, justice is defined by the process in, in American uh, Jewish prudence, the process that they give you. Well, you read your rights. Uh, would you uh, allow to have an attorney? Did you have a preliminary hearing? Did, it's all these legal things that justice is what justice is. It's never about, okay, you know, who, who, who was harmed? What happened? How can we repair that? That's not the system uh, that, that we live in. And so when you know, or when you learn, I should say, when you learn that uh, the life that you're living in was created by other people, you have to find ways to get free. And so when I realized that I had experienced a, a social death as a result of going through the criminal legal system, which means that my name was replaced with a number. My body was taken into total control by the state of Tennessee. And, and the states are the only, and the state of Tennessee is the legally uh, is designates me as a slave. And you may not know that, but in Tennessee, slavery, like the 13th Amendment, is allowable if you've been convicted of a crime. And so my status as a slave is the social death. Because when you're no longer seen as a citizen, because when you're convicted of a crime in, in Tennessee, you automatically lose your voting rights. And the thing about losing your voting rights, you lose your some parts of your civil rights, your citizenship rights. And you don't even know it. You're not told this. This is not a part of the punishment. Like you commit this crime, you'll get a certain amount of years, you go to prison or maybe a fine. It doesn't say you're also gonna lose your citizenship and you know, your, your rights. And so the social death is the exile from society going into the prison and you becoming an inmate. And this inmate, just like a criminal and a felon is a state created thing. These dehumanized, dehumanizing labels have functionality. And in this social death, you encounter not just like those who are with you, but there's a plethora of individuals who feed off of the criminal legal system to feed their families. And so when you're looking at this system, if they keep you focused in on the people who are considered the worst of the worst, you don't really see the vultures, those who eat off of this system in the name of we got to protect society because the reality is, is that people who have serious charges, I and mean, I'm talking about murder and rape, they have the lowest recidivism rates in the country. We're talking about single digits. We're not talking about high digits. So it's unlikely that people who commit serious acts of violence will reoffend. And so in that social death, and you just think about death, death brings a period to life. You know, they bury you and you have a funeral or whatever, and it's done. And that's kind of like what happens when you go into prison, but you're not really dead. It just means you no longer have a character, according to the uh, United States Supreme Court, um, and that you're not really a person anymore and that you're owned by the state. That the state in Tennessee is the own, like individuals no longer were able to own slaves, but the states do, even to this is 2022. And so that's the social death. And so when that social death status follows you after parole, it changes. And that's the thing about the system is shift, shift shapes into other things. Mm -hmm. It becomes felonism. 
and anything that has an ISM is, is an institutionalized way of practicing discrimination mm -hmm. and unfair treatment against populations and groups of people. And so with people who are released from prison, the, what we call disenfranchisement is really um, taking uh, your, 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 your citizenship rights, your voting rights. And so like in my, my state, more than 430,000 people can't vote. So we're talking about the control given to legislators with the stroke of a pen. And in the 80s, the Democrats in Tennessee removed the right for Tennesseans to vote if they are convicted of a felony. And while I don't agree with this, because the only way you should really lose your right to be an American and to have full-fledged access to things is you should, if you commit treason or you're convicted of, of sedition, something that where you say, I don't have a loyalty to this country anymore. Something like that happened January 6th, uh, mm -hmm. last year of Trump, Trump's uh, office of uh, presidency. That was, that was treasonist. That was, you know, sedition to me. And so those of us who commit acts of, you know, uh, the breaking of the laws here in the different states, um, we're not thinking about going against a country, giving up our citizenship rights. And so felonism is the, the, the social, economic, political disenfranchisement, um, disempowerment of individuals who are released from prison. And so that's how we can justify not really affording people the opportunities and the resources that will allow for you to mm -hmm. live a full, free and productive life. Because as long as you don't see me as a human being, you don't have to treat me as such. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so everything you're saying just points to the punitive nature of the system. And so I was just curious if there's anything you would add for how you explain retributive punishment. Yeah. So it's really simple because that's another thing in this country that we do is we complicate reality with long, big term words, right? In, in, in Tennessee or maybe America in Tennessee, Retributive, I'm going to say retributive justice looks like if you do something to break the law, me as the state, which is an abstract thing, because if I ask you who is the state, we're not going to get a definition. So that even in and of itself is a dehumanizing experience, but it's to intentionally inflict harm on someone who is a citizen or not a citizen who breaks the law. And that's retributive. You know, you want to harm someone who has caused a harm, right? And you would think that going to prison is your punishment, right? Because you're removed from society. But it, it's more than that because we have perpetual um, retribution because it, it goes on long before, long after you are released. And this is why some people can't get jobs who are formerly incarcerated. They can't live in certain situations because of, you know, certain convictions or they're looked down upon or they're not given access. And that's the continuation of retribution because you're going to continue to punish me. And, the, you know, the sad thing about it happening in America is that we live in a country that was built on every single thing that we call a crime today. There's nothing that American citizens 
have done since the Civil War, Reconstruction, voting rights, civil rights. You know, the founding of this nation was violent. Mm -hmm. But you don't want to hear people don't, I'm, I, I'm not a racist. I didn't talk. I didn't, you know, you don't want to hear us talk about that. But what you do to your individual citizens, you keep them stuck in their past. But America gets to advance past its worst things that it has ever done, the Trail of Tears, slavery, Hiroshima, Nagasaki. You know, we can think of all the bad things that this country has done in, in the name of, you know, freedom, right? And it's not bad. It's not worse than what its citizens have done. But its citizens are held to a higher standard than those who are acting in government positions. And so I think that type of hypocrisy has to be called out because people like myself who while in prison fought to be educated was denied college education because I didn't qualify but didn't give up eventually began to get college credits while I was in prison people buying uh paying for my for my tuition whether it was through uh, uh uh classes that I would receive through the mail or Lipscomb University coming in and I was a co-founder of SALT, Schools for Alternative Learning Transformation. We're bringing gang members, people who normally wouldn't want to be educated into an academic space. And so before I left prison, I was given a scholarship to attend American Baptist College. And so when you have value that you don't even know is there because you don't have that um, nourishment, that intellectual academic cultivation, you don't even know that you can make a contribution, right? But then when I leave prison with a scholarship with 15 credits, immediately enroll into college, graduate summa cum laude from my college, give the student commencement speech, the first graduate in my family. And you still want to treat me like I'm nobody when there are people who have never gone to prison that, you know, have accomplished what you know, I've been able to do through a community of people who didn't judge me by the worst thing that I, I had ever done. So retribution, I'm pushing back on it, but it is real. Yeah. Yeah. And just within that whole system and just the punitive nature of it. And like you said, like the intention to cause harm to someone is if like, well, because you did something wrong, like we should punish you in a way that stripped you of your humanity and all these things. And again, the hypocrisy of it, that word's really sticking out to me. Uh, so then how do you explain transformative justice, sort of the, in a way, the antithesis of this punitive system? Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and I would also add restorative justice mm -hmm. slash transformative justice, right? Because there are restorative justice principles that are different than the criminal legal system's way. For example, when something happens where a person has caused harm, the first thing is not call the police. You know, it's like who, the question is who was harmed? And then you're gonna move into a space, how can we bring about healing? Who caused that harm? How can they be healed, right? And so those are restorative, uh, justice ideas, concepts, practices, but certain things can't be restored. But with transformation, which happens internally. So this person, let's look at from the harmer's point of view, the person who caused the harm. 
he or she experiences something internally that they become so aware of what they have done and the harm that it caused the effect on the community and how it was a violation just of the covenant of being a human being and then people come into that space not dehumanizing that person but acknowledging that person's humanity where he or she can state intentions can be a part of community and can live a productive life because now he or she can think internally before bad choices are made because they have transcended the worst thing that I've ever done. And if you look at it from the personal point of view of, of a survivor, when my sister was murdered in, in 2000, my brothers were very angry about what had happened and they wanted revenge, which is like a retributive way of thinking. And I said, well, if, if you want to do that, then that's what you want to happen to me because I did something that I should not have done. And what you're saying, you want to happen to him. You basically saying you want that to happen to me. So my family had a transformation as a result of experiencing my points of view on the bad choice that I made. And I took it another step to where I'm in consultation in sessions with the Rafa Institute here in Nashville where we're going to be connecting with the person who killed my sister in a, a restorative justice or conference circle, perhaps a healing circle, informative circle, but there are different types of ways that you can do this. But transformative justice allows for the person who survived harm to be nourished, to be healed, and to transcend that bad thing. Yeah. Oh, so many of the words there uh, that just stick out to me. And one of them being just healing and so much of an emphasis on healing within a transformative model. And there's just not discussion about healing within a punitive retributive model. Uh, so what do we as a nation need to do to exchange this re retributive punishment for a transformative and restorative justice model and to end state slavery and, and to institute universal voting rights? Like, what do we need to do? Yeah. So that's, that's, I had to take that in parts. So number one, we have to reimagine the meaning of justice. And then we have to line up our religious principles and what that looks like. Because in Christianity, um, if, if Jesus died for our sins and that was the atonement for humanity and all we had to do was just like confess a certain level of like okay I'm, I'm a believer and I live a certain way right but everybody's not religious so when you think it from a civil point of view a social point of view um civic point of view I mean we the people have to decide what justice is we cannot allow for something that we know is not working that does not produce the best results to continue because, you know, I'm sure everyone has heard that um, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. And so we have to reimagine, and this is going to be conversations because right now you have some people who are experts on separ sep separating people, dividing people, using um, these um, um, wedges to say why I'm against you and you're against me. But if we can come under the umbrella of freedom and being Americans and understanding that the journey 
that those who have been labeled as the forefathers, uh, that freedom idea is a continuous thing that has to be built on. And sometimes you have to destroy what didn't work to replace it with something new. And so reimagining justice is saying like, as an American, regardless of if it's hypothetical, if I did the worst thing in life, what do I want to happen? And I guarantee you there's no American alive who would seriously think about reimagining justice would see themselves like, I want you to kill me. Or I want you to send me to prison for the rest of my life and I'll never get out. I want you to get a 51 year life sentence, right? Mm -hmm. And so as it relates to the part about, part about the voting rights, universal voting rights, it's very important to understand as an American that anyone who can undermine if you can tamper with the vote, if you can take a vote, you can, you can, you can undermine a democracy. Because your very voice as an American is central to being able to have a say as a, a, a citizen in that society. And the only way that that person should be disallowed to vote if he or she gives up their loyalty, I mean, gives up their uh, citizenship rights. Because we are not a democracy, a pure democracy, if all voices aren't being heard, you see? Because you may not like what I did, but that doesn't cancel out my citizenship. And I would take it a step further and say that your voting right should, should be involatile. It should, no one should ever be able to touch it. It can never be removed. Your voting right should be the most sacred of any right, okay? And so that's as it relates to... Uh, so that means that we have to just say, hey, I might not like what you've done, but I'm not going to take your citizenship because that way, at least everybody is getting a vote who wants to vote, right? As it relates to voting, universal voting rights, that, those are my thoughts. And you, you asked me one other question. Oh, about ending state slavery. Yeah, so is it, in ending state slavery, um, what we have to understand is that all states adopted something from the 13th Amendment um, of the United States Constitution that allowed for some form of slavery to exist. And so what we have to do is ask the question, why? Did those who made, made that exception have an intention to re-enslave? And if that is true, then where is the evidence? Well, we saw that after the Emancipation Proclamation and uh, Reconstruction, how Black men were being in prison through vagrancy laws. We saw how once they were imprisoned, they were being leased out through convict leasing, working on plantations and not being paid. So if human beings or citizens can't own slaves, the state should not be able to own slaves either. Because what that means is if you can enslave anybody and legally that's their status, that means anyone can be enslaved as an American. And that's not the way that we deal with this. And so here in Tennessee, I'm with a coalition, uh, No Exceptions and Free Hearts. And we have a campaign to finish it, Tennessee. And to finish it, Tennessee, meaning that we want to be done with slavery once and for all. If you don't believe in slavery, 
then you need to vote to remove slavery and you have to vote for a governor because if you don't vote for a governor, your vote to end slavery won't even count in Tennessee. And so we have to do that because this is how a society evolves. When it recognizes that it has imperfections and it can correct those imperfections, then that's what we need to do. Mm, yes. Again, so much stuck out to me there. And I just thought about Brian Stevenson, who founded the Equal Justice Initiative, how he said, I believe each person is more than the worst thing they've ever done. And that's been something to just kind of in my own life pinpoint back to and an anchor in a way. And the word reimagining that you used was just really beautiful. And I think about how in my own faith tradition within Christianity, you know, we pray the Lord's prayer about uh, on earth as it is in heaven. And so in my own life, like, how do I, and, and I, and I don't know a lot about what that looks like anymore in the sense of what is heaven? Like I have a lot of questions, but right. I know it's not what it looks like now. And so it's like, how do I get in the world around me one step closer and another step closer to on earth as it is in heaven. And yeah. And the idea of every voice is heard and taking the vote away from people, how you describing describe that as undermining democracy and how we know that there are people currently who want to do that and are doing that and have been doing that undermining democracy, even the January 6th and everything that led up to that. And since then, and yeah. And, and just that's another quote from Brian Stevenson, slavery didn't end, it just evolved. And so you even kind of walking through that from enslavement to convict leasing and then into mass incarceration. And I was curious if you could talk a little more about how our present day mass incarceration system is connected to the era of enslavement and like the language even more, like I know you've talked about uh, the 13th amendment and some things there, but if there's anything else that kind of connects that shows how the two are connected absolutely and before i answer that that connection of mass incarceration to uh plantation uh carceral or slavery i just want to say about the the verse you had mentioned um the lord's prayer thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and so when i so i've been studying theology ever since i would say the 90s in prison and i actually graduated from uh, a theological school with a degree in entrepreneurial leadership. And one of the things that people who are, you know, taught to teach the word, there's a thing called hermeneutics. And you, you have to break down it, give meaning and bring it up to date. And so what would heaven on earth look like in America? I mean, it's really simple. And so we look to like this, this we don't make, it's too hard, but it looks like people who need to eat can eat. People who need a job can have a job. People having homes, people having cars, people being in community, loving thy neighbor as thyself. Um, people visiting people in prison and you know recognizing that the mandate that Jesus gave in Matthew 25, that even if you have not done it unto the least of them, you have not done it unto me. Enforcing those who are misrepresenting uh, Christianity to uh, take Christianity as a whole, all of the gospels combined, and not just uh, this multiple choice Christianity, because it's hurting us, because we have the potential to be the greatest country on the planet that has ever been in existence, because 
There are so many resources, so much money. It's way more than what we need. So we create the heaven on earth by providing the needs and uh, even just with, uh, 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 what is it? Maslow's um, hierarchy of laws or whatever that is. That's, that's heaven on earth. We're making it too complicated. But to connect mass incarceration to plantation slavery is very simple. It's just that you have to stop at what I call post-13th Amendment slavery. So post-13th Amendment slavery is what our country did after we so-called freed those who had been enslaved. And, and I don't use that term slaves. They were human beings that were enslaved. They were, they were treated as though they were slaves, but they had been enslaved. They were human beings. And that's why I wouldn't qualify that language. But at the end of the day, post-13th Amendment slavery was the legal way to enslave people by giving these codes that said, if you do X, Y, and Z, I can re-enslave you. And so we have to look at this thing for what it is that what uh, Joe Biden, President Biden, uh, as a senator under Bill Clinton, you know, Joe Biden, President Biden, he wrote this crime bill. And we need to go back beyond that. And we just have to look at, you know, Ronald Reagan and, you know, like getting tough on, you know, nonviolent type offenses. And even, even, even before that, what was the guy's name who said, I'm not a crook, the president who- Nixon? Nixon. Mm -hmm. He actually started this so-called war on crime, right? And so when you look at where we are today, like in the 70s, we had less than- 350,000 people all across the United States in, in prisons, in prisons. I didn't say enslaved, in prisons. And so when you get to what happened after that, and then you have to ask yourself this question so you can really understand how it evolved and why, you know, with the state owning people made it legal to use these bodies. So when I was in prison in the state of Tennessee, every year about... Twenty-seven dollars to $32,000 was allocated to the Tennessee Department of Corrections because my body was there. And that's how the budgets were built around the people who were been in prison. And so with that amount of money that's connected to my body and all the bodies of people in prisons, and like we have like a billion dollar budget now in Tennessee, there are all these employees who work in the state right? From officers to counselors to uh, wardens and these vendors and all of these people that take tax dollars and use their businesses to enrich themselves off of tax dollars. And so the society is financing this mass incarceration in this um, uh, uh, I would say immature approach mm -hmm. to what we call crime, right? Because mm -hmm. if healing was part of the component, less people would actually recidivate and end up, you know, back in the clutches of, you know, so mass incarceration is just legal slavery. It's not the same thing as people who were brought here on boats and ships and didn't do anything to deserve it. Some of us, many of us have done things that, we have to be removed from society, but in taking total control of my body, 
there should be components in place to where I can heal and then mm -hmm. I can come out and be a contributing positive force in the society in which I live. But when you look at the conditions and you know that seven out of every 10 people will return in five years, this is nationally, you're taking our money. If this was a business, corrections, it would have been shut down because seven out of every 10 of your products cannot be defective for you to remain in business. Mm -hmm. And so the society isn't challenging those who are in these positions of authority to produce better results. And so why would you? Because the idea of slavery in past times was economic. Mm -hmm. You work people for 400 years and you didn't pay them. So if you work anybody for any number of years, and so today you work for 15 and 20 cents an hour in Tennessee, 30 cents, 50 cents an hour, labor, right? And so it's economic. And, but if you can keep the idea those are criminals, you're like, it's okay. And that's why we have to lift up the humanity of people. And we have to look at the extenuating circumstances that led to them committing certain acts. Because right now, just in Tennessee alone, over 50% of the people in the population have mental health issues. Mm -hmm. So that means that 50% of the people who are leaving prisons in Tennessee have mental health issues. So if I'm leaving prison damaged even more than I was when I went in, mm -hmm. why wouldn't you expect me to come back? And we have like a 52, 53% recidivism rate here in the state of Tennessee. And what's really sad is that there is a deliberate effort to stop people like me from going back into the prisons and being an example and someone who can give light to prisoners to plant the seeds of transformative justice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, again, just so much there. And just thinking about when you can take away the rights of someone and their autonomy and their consent, and they become like you had talked about just a number and all of those things within a system, just how much that resonates with what happened to enslaved people during the era of, of enslavement pre uh, emancipation proclamation and all of those things. And yeah, and I think about how even again, who is holding the power in these positions as officers and all these things. And it's like disproportionately white people as well. And the book, how the word is passed by Clint Smith that came out last year and he visited different places. And one of them was Angola mm -hmm. and just reading his recounting of being there and seeing a white man on a horse with a weapon and the people who are marching out. And it's like, just like what happened during, like, it's just that connection there. And I want to give a shout out to historian Letty Gore, who is a black woman historian in Wilmington, North Carolina. And she is, it was in her book club that we read that book by Clint Smith and the work she does to show how the past is connected to the present. It didn't just happen. And so like all the things you're saying, connecting those dots, uh, and, and it just makes me think too, like we've talked about Christianity and how Christianity is just so baked into the culture in the United States 
And so I was thinking about the theological belief of penal substitutionary atonement. And you were talking about that with like what happened to Jesus. And so I feel like when that's the main theological belief, how is that connected to the retributive punishment we see in the legal system here? Yeah. And so it's, it's weird when I think about it, because on the one hand, as long as any religion has an afterlife that has a punishment, it just, it, it gives a certain level of justification to punish people while they're still alive. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to put that there. But when you, when you talk about atonement and like, you know, and Jesus, you know, being the one who, you know, gave his life so everybody could, you know, be entered into the kingdom because it, it was once just something that was available to Jewish people through, you know, that Abrahamic, uh, that, that covenant. But with Jesus, it was extended, you know, Yahshua, let's, let's make sure we understand because a lot of people don't understand what even we think we know. And this is why education is so important. But when you look at society and atonement, I'm not necessarily against it because I'm going to tell you something. I, I harm someone in the family and I needed to be held accountable for that, right? It didn't mean that you had to punish me beyond what was necessary for me to come back to to my humanity or even enter into the space of my humanity for the first time, right? And so atonement is like a price also that that you pay, you know, for a wrong uh, that you've done. And like, it's like even a confession involved in that process. And so, you know, we just can't um, have people doing whatever they want to do in the society, like, right? But it doesn't have to be bars, razor wire fences and cages. And it doesn't have to be um, a daycare center as well. That, that, again, the imagination, like Mm -hmm. what is the best way to approach situations where human beings have gotten off track? And so as long as religion is mixed in with the choices, because like a lot of people say their uh, political uh, ideas and decisions are influenced by their religious beliefs, you know? And so, yeah, and I don't really know how to reconcile those two ideas because on the one hand with atonement, you know, that's a religious idea, but how does that translate into accountability for violating a social norm or social more or social, you know, something on that level. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost to be, to be continued, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, the language you use there of the, if an afterlife that is punitive, but then also the idea of Jesus, like someone had to die. And so that language then being used as an excuse to, it's so interesting, right? Because we say no cruel or unusual punishment, but the way things are done are quite cruel. These like even solitary confinement or things like that, even if you don't, you know, death row is putting someone to death. But even if you don't do a literal death to someone, like you were talking about the social death that people experience, but then I see so many Christians and myself 
having been one of them, I could hide behind a theological belief to sort of give a pass to not caring or to even letting it give permission for cruelty and for dehumanization. And I feel like so much of it is connected to a fear and a scarcity model uh, and then not understanding people's need for survival, which kind of connects back to what we were talking about at the beginning. So I was curious in, you know, a couple questions before we wrap up, you know, how are fear, scarcity, and the need for survival used to manipulate and control people in our country? Yeah. So, so fear, I was taught that it's, it's false evidence or false expectations appearing real. It's like, it's not even really there, but if I can make you believe that it is, the same result will occur psychologically within you. Right. And so when you're dealing with like the idea of scarcity, um, like this, this sum zero gain, it, it's the idea that, you know, resources are fixed. Like some, it's like, it's only so much of whatever. And if you don't get your little piece of part of whatever that something is, you know, it's going to create this panic within yourself. That like, if I don't, then I'm going to be left out. Right. And, the reality is, is that there's, there's abundance, there is abundance on the planet. And the reality is, is that, you know, we have more food than, than we can actually consume, right? But this idea and this notion of scarcity, you have to actually ask the question, who does it benefit? And so it benefits those who want to manipulate and control human behavior because, you know, consumership and, and capitalism and how that's connected it places us in a competitive zone with each other whereas if we were like living in a religious idea you know community we would take care of one another we would really you know feel things like we would have neighborhoods and there would be a certain level of trust and you know love would be like a a very highly motivating uh way in which, you know, you discharge your duty as a human being who's a neighbor to another. So this, this, this sum zero game is a, it's a lie. And the thing is, is that without education, people don't really understand. People actually think that there's too many people and that the, the earth is gonna run out of space. They don't understand what 24,896 square miles looks like. They don't know what seven, thousand nine hundred twenty six miles in diameter the earth from one point going straight through it is they don't really understand you know we have oceans and you can be on and you can't see land for days they don't understand that in the um the state of texas you can put the whole country in texas because people have manipulated our minds and we don't understand that these things aren't true and so scarcity mm -hmm. mindset creates this survival mode. And see, when they put us in survival mode, we're operating under the first law, which is self-preservation. And as long as you're operating in the self-preservation, which is your reptilian brain, which is the first evolution of like the thinking process of homo, uh, homo erectus, I think. And uh, you're not thinking about anybody else but yourself. And so it kind of coincides with like American individualism. Mm -hmm. And so those of us who understand we have a, a duty 
to to convey uh accurate information and that's what mm -hmm. i try to do and you can like mm -hmm. anything that i can say can be googled and you can verify it a lot of people are saying things that aren't verifiable mm -hmm. and as a result of that a lot of people are being misled mm -hmm. Yes. And I feel like so much of it connects to, you know, what I heard described as like the school to prison pipeline or in your book, the cradle to prison pipeline. And just how I think it connects back to, again, the hypocrisy of a nation and its leaders who created the very conditions that are fear-based scarcity model and leaving people struggling to survive, but then taking no accountability for that and doing nothing to alleviate that suffering. And just the words there of community and having a community of care. And you had a community of people who you found who came around you while you're in prison. And so, yeah, like, what do you know now on your journey about love and about freedom? Yeah. Thank you for asking those very important questions that I think are central to just even being a human being, but definitely being an American. If we, we deal with the freedom part first. So I know what freedom is not. And it's only when you have like this juxtaposition, like you know what it's not, then what it can be is exponentially like an imagination of sorts. You know, I recently, um, which was yesterday, I just got back from Alabama Gulf Shores. I was sharing that with you. And like every time that I'm actually in nature, you see the mm -hmm. ocean, I get a certain spiritual appreciation for that, what we may call the creator or the source of life, God, Allah, Jehovah, whoever, Yahweh, I don't know the name because the name is not important. The evidence that something great exists is just enough for me because I know human beings can't do that, right? And so with freedom, we have to ask questions individually and say, well, what does that really mean? What it means is I feel safe enough, protected enough that I can live the life that I choose and contribute to society as a whole without fear that what I say or what I do is not going to cause the authorities to take and snatch me up and put me into a prison or some mob is going to come down the street and, 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 and you know, and, and tie me up and hang me from a tree. Or, you know, if I'm a woman, I can't be walking outside and, you know, some party runs behind me and, 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 and violates me or whatever. Freedom, there's a safeguard of protection in freedom. And there's this ability to express your personhood, you know? And so, it takes love. You know, I was taught that love is the light of virtuous effect. Like the power of love. You have to understand what I'm saying is deep. Like there are like different levels of love, like agape love. There's uh, so many other types of love. But I'm not characterizing what I'm about to say. I'm just saying that when you love someone, something, there's a sacred approach to how you interact with that right? Like when you love people, you want to be in their presence. Fear comes in, you separate. Judgment, you separate. Like fear and love are really the opposites, not fear, not, not hate and love. Because it's only when I'm feeling afraid that I want to hold up and not be so close to you. 
or that I'm your neighbor and somehow somebody made you think because I'm black that I'm going to snatch your purse and that you can't walk down the street. Mm -hmm. Something, someone planted that seed in your head because the reality is, is that it's not what the truth is. You know, like the mm -hmm. facts, I should say facts. I won't take truth mm -hmm. out of it. And so with love, it allows us to approach one another with such care and gentleness. Like when you mm -hmm. love a child, there's a certain care that comes with that love. Or when you love your, your siblings, your mom, you love a, 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 your husband, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, whatever, there's a certain care and appreciation. And so, you know, like I have a lot of love in my life. And so I know that love keeps me connected to the people I'm in community mm -hmm. with. Oh, I love all of that that you've shared and that freedom, the protection that comes with freedom and the expression of personhood, and then the connection that comes with love and just how that juxtaposition there of fear versus love. And so when we live in a country that wants to sow fear and division, getting to the love and to the connection with one another to where we care about what happens to other people. Yes. Oh, that was all so beautiful. Well, these final questions to wrap us up are just some fun ones that I'm borrowing from Tasha Hunter, who her podcast is when we speak. And so I love these questions. So Raheem, who or what inspires you? So, uh, I'm gonna go with, the, I'm gonna go with the two. They just came straight up behind me is a picture of Harriet Tubman. She is my hero, shero, hero. And she's my shero, hero because, you know, she didn't have to go back to liberate more people. They said she had like over 120 and she never lost anybody. And um, when I think about her and I think about what liberation is, it's not just taking people from one geo geographic location. There's also a mental liberation because it's written about her that she says she could have saved more if only they knew they were slaves, right? And so that's why I do my work, you know? And um, I'm gonna add Reverend Janet Wolf to the connection with Harriet because I was having a tough time and she sent me a picture, that picture right there, and it's a card. And it just woke me back up because, you know, Janet, Reverend Janet Wolf is really, she doesn't take credit, but she's responsible for the education that I've gotten to this day, because if she wouldn't have came to that door when I was in prison at three weeks, looking through a window of college students and professors and asked me, why was I looking through that window? I never would have had an academic experience, right? And so I want to I want to credit those two with the liberation idea of, of what inspires me. And, and, and currently, you know, like in my personal life, you know, I'm inspired by my, my, my new partner who gave me more knowledge of what it is, the struggles of, of a black woman and a black mother, the double minority experience in trying to be more than just a, a parent, like trying to embody two energies, masculine and feminine, when you're a single parent mother. And so I'm inspired by where uh, she is today and where she came from. And I'm looking at my own life and I'm like, wow, you know, like 
inspiration is all around us. All we have to do is get acquainted with the real life stories of the people that come into our lives. You know, like you allow me to share, but I'm saying like, we don't do this today because with social media, there's this surface cursory way of connecting that doesn't really get deep into the you know, like deeper perusal of like life itself right and so yeah I have a great life yeah I have a great life thank you for sharing oh that was all really beautiful well in the work you do it's obviously quite heavy and difficult work so who or what makes you laugh and brings you some joy in the work you're doing yeah same person because she's really funny her actually her name is kim um but yeah she is so humorous makes me laugh at myself and when i went to prison i had to shut down my humanity in a way that made me enter into survival mode so i'm still in a liberation process myself even though i'm almost seven years out of prison having been caged for 26 years of my life i'm still becoming me mm -hmm. and so she 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 makes me laugh and a lot of it just comes from just you know watching comedians and stuff because like life is it's not all serious right like this thing called life is a journey and it's not one thing like everything is happening right now everything and so we only can absorb as much as we can absorb right and so we choose to focus in on one thing or another thing and so I need to laugh because it helps me. I feel like inner um, joy, you know, I get from laughter and things like that. So yeah, it was, it's her. Oh, yes. I love that as well. Well, when you want to dance, what song or type of music gets you dancing? Oh, so my last time I danced, I made a fool of myself. I, <laughs> I, I, I actually posted it on social media. The song is, uh, um, it's a new edition song and it's called uh, boys to men and it's they're singing about how they're learning on the road how to become responsible how to mature and how to become but the beat is really good and i was dancing to that and i was making some food and stuff and i i actually posted it and it and it has gotten the second amount the second most likes and stuff like that and i'm being real silly and when i was growing up you know i used to actually dance i was a uh, what is in high school they used to have these called halftimers and i made the halftime squad but i used to grow up and dancing was really big you know when i saw michael jackson and um off the wall and then thriller and, and so, yeah, it's in me to be a dancer, but, you know, I still have to bring him out because I went into a shell. I went into a right. shell. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, your ongoing journey, connecting with those parts of yourself. Oh, yes. Well, uh, where can people find that video to watch yeah. and find you on social media? Yeah. So they can find that video on Facebook and, um, I think it's in February of this year where I posted it and it is so hilarious. Um, I'm even singing in it and I can't sing a lick. So, <laughs> but that's what happens when you're free. There is no fear of judgment. That's what happens when you're free. There's this thing that like you can be who you want to be and you don't have worries about, I wasn't thinking about anybody else. I was just being in that moment. And so Raheem Buford is where you can find me on uh, Facebook, on Instagram, 
on Twitter, and also the work that I'm actually doing, it's also on Facebook under Unheard Voices Outreach. We have Unheard Voices uh, Twitter, Unheard Voices Instagram, and we also have a um, unheardvoicesoutreach.org where if people want to contribute to the organization with 501c3 where the uh, donations are tax exempt because it's hard to fund our organization because we're led by former, uh, formerly incarcerated people and we're grassroots and we, we help liberate youth who were once youth from prison and like our work is not valued in the same as charity work in a way that so justice as it relates so you can donate to us and that'd be great because we have November is right around the corner and Unheard Voices is the third leg of this campaign which is I want to plug that because it's very important it's United Tennessee and um, we we need all Tennesseans to vote to remove slavery from Tennessee's constitution and they have to vote for a governor. So we want to put that out there so you can support us in the work that we do by donating to the organization. Well, that's perfect. I will include all that in the show notes and make sure people can find all of that easily. So thank you so much for coming onto the podcast, Rahim, and for sharing about how we can exchange this retributive punitive model for a restorative, transformative model of justice. And I'm grateful that we've connected and appreciate your time today. Yeah, well, thank you, Nikki, for the opportunity. This is something I enjoy. This is something I really want to do. And I had to find my space. I haven't found it yet, like, because I think that it's easier to give information out through a conversation. And like, I'm branding this term called dream sessions. And it's a hashtag dream sessions, like dream conversations. And so like in America and probably the other parts of the country, I only been to one other place, which was Turks and Caicos, but we have to dream the reality that we want to live. And that's how it comes into beginning phases of creation. And we have to have conversations. So thank mm. you. Yes. Thank you. I'm joining you in the dreaming and the reimagining. And I'm, I'm really grateful for you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to Broadening the Narrative. Follow me on Instagram at Broadening the Narrative. If you haven't yet, please rate, review, and follow the podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Your engagement helps others find the show. If you like what you heard today, share it with a friend and on your social media. I really think that little by little, person by person, we can broaden the narrative. My memoir, Ask Familiar's Family, is now available to purchase through my website at NikkiPappas.com. As Familiar's Family explores how I was groomed for toxic relationships and religion and how I got out. And I know I'm not the only one. So head to my website to buy a copy for yourself and anyone else who is hurting and healing from toxic relationships and religion. The music for this season was created by Joshua Pappas, my oldest child. We worked together using the Chrome Music Lab song maker and had so much fun. I also want to thank Daniel Bolin for creating the episode graphic. You can access the Broadening the Narrative blog and transcripts for podcast episodes as they become available by visiting my website. Until next time, grace and peace, friends.